Actually, Jason's, uh, where's Jason? Oh, there he is. He's right. I actually remember an Old Testament professor saying to me, uh, as he was reading this psalm to me, he said, the best way to translate this would be, where in my Sheol are you? He used the, he used the Hebrew word <laughs> for uh, hell. Uh, it's, it's a powerful idea that as you're, as you're struggling with the world you're living in and what you see around you, where in my Sheol, he said, is the cry of the psalmist. My experience of this. He's hanging from the cross. And all is captured in pain and in suffering. But the most profound emotion is probably what he is feeling, which is abandonment. All of a sudden, this man, Jesus, cries out of the deepest part of his soul, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utter aloneness, radical abandonment. If you can understand the deep cry of Jesus from the cross, then you may, you may grasp just for a moment the raw emotions of the psalmist as he calls out to God in Psalm 13. He's in despair. It's a desolation of the soul. Maybe he's emerging from a profound experience of suffering. Some commentators muse that that might be the case. But more likely, as it is for me and I'm sure for you, more likely it is not one single event, but a number of things happening either at once or in succession. It's cumulative. It, it kind of gathers and all of a sudden you find yourself in utter, raw despair. Whatever the circumstances, whatever his feelings as he's crying out in desolation, commentators of this Old Testament, uh, of this passage, call this one of the Psalms of Lament. We're told that there's two kinds of those kinds of psalms. There's the corporate kind of lament over the condition of Israel. And then there's just that individual personal plight. But it's always a cry of anguish. It's always a cry of urgency. How long, oh Lord? This is not the cry of a student coming out of a final exam he or she didn't study for. This is not the cry of a person who hands in a paper that was obviously not well-researched and done at 2 o'clock in the morning. This is the cry of a godly, deeply spiritual person, a person who at this moment feels deserted and in despair. We've always dealt, unfortunately, with this aspect of the spiritual life We've, with this idea of despair and frustration, uh, too often in evangelical worlds, we've seen this as a sign of spiritual failure. But the scriptures are much kinder to us, much more realistic than some Christians are concerning the understanding of despair and depression. It's part of the spiritual life to them. 
It's a wilderness experience. It's normative in the walk of faith. This is part of what it means to be a person of faith. Sometimes you may have heard a person tell a fellow Christian suffering with a sense of desolation and despair or even depression that because we worship a God who is love and hope, we're told that despair or depressions are not part of that walk. Well, they're wrong. Read the Psalms. Read this one this morning. The Psalms that say, why are you cast down, O my soul? O my God, where are you in my pain? Or as Elijah cries out, O Lord, take away my life. Read church history. It's threaded, woven with people who we considered great women and great men of the faith. Luther, Hudson Taylor, John Wesley. Just read those stories of those people and understand how much their life had these kinds of rhythms at certain times in their lives. The one thing that is certain is that there is no cry more poignant, no cry more deeply, more honestly felt than when it comes from someone who is so in touch intimately with God, so in touch with the God who is love to them, that when they feel abandoned, they feel utterly alone. Let me see if I can explain this. Have you ever had someone in your life in which intimacy and care and interactions were crucial to your living, but then they're snatched away? There's a loss of the closeness, not just because of their absence, but because of the circumstances that were absence, that their absence has created. It, there's a fog, there's a wall, there's a sense of a void in the connection that was so imperative to your existence. There's these feelings of needing that presence, yet powerlessness and unable to understand why it isn't there. There's an urgency, there's an intensity in the missing. There's a despair, even in the blaming of that person for leaving them. Well, that's what's occurring in this psalm. It's an experience of the void, if you want, of being aware of being without God. Experiencing something much more intense if that awareness in the relationship has been so crucial to their living up to this point. You will not feel this kind of depth of abandonment if you have not felt the intimacy. And that explains the nature of the psalm's questions. How long, O oh Lord? Not, Lord, do you really exist? But how long? It's a question that can only come from someone who has experienced the intimacy with God. Remember me, God. Not if there's a God, do you know me? But do you remember me? I know you're there. I'm almost demanding. I'm, I'm demanding. Remember me again. You cannot know the depth of the despair of the psalmist is feeling unless you have experienced, as I've said, the depth of intimacy. What's the most important to the psalmist in this psalm is the loss of intimacy, an intimacy with God, not because of the despairing event, but of the awareness of being without him in the middle of it, of feeling without him. Listen to the cry four times, how long, 
in two verses. How long? He portrays the intensity of his despair and his confusion. They are pointed, they are specific. They're reflecting inner questions that come from a despair and disillusionment that we all ask. Whatever our despair is, how long will you hide from me? Of being alone. Stop hiding from me, God. How long will I sorrow in my heart all day? I'm in pain. Hurt. How long, O oh Lord, will my enemies be exalted over me? This fear of being defeated, of losing courage to keep going. Those are the honest feelings of lament. The cry beyond experience. The cry for help from God. The next part of this psalm and of a psalm of lament is a cry for help from God in verses 3 and 4. It's demanding, almost insistent. He doesn't prescribe what he needs, but he does want God to answer. Look on me and answer. Give light to my eyes. He does tell God what might happen if he doesn't. If you don't, I will sleep in death, or even worse, thinking God that cares about his reputation. The enemies will say I am defeated and therefore you are defeated. Dramatic words. Again, incredibly human, right? Almost melodramatic, in, but if you didn't consider the depth of his despair, you might kind of laugh at the melodrama of his words. But I want you to notice this, what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell God what he should do. He's concerned, in verse 4, about his enemies defeating him, therefore thinking that they have defeated God. But he really is concerned about himself. But he doesn't prescribe any resolve or even what the answer should be. Instead, he just cries out to God to be God. Please do something. Do, do the God thing. I fear that as followers of Christ in the 21st century, we aren't like this. We're way too impatient. We want a puppet God who responds the way we think he should. If, if I were you, God, this is what I would do. The psalmist asked God to enlighten his eyes. Let me see. Give me some perspective. We say this is what you should do, and if he doesn't, we get mad. Like Jonah, we stomp off to the hill and rail against this God who would not function like a puppet for Jonah. Suffering, grief, despair often determines the way we look at things. Yet it is here in this place, in this wilderness, that clarity is the most possible if we allow God to be God. The psalmist realizes this. This is deep for him. He's praying for enlightenment, 
a time for God to let him see more clearly, to see something with perspective. I remember when a dear friend of mine who mentored my life uh, was dying of cancer. He was the area minister of Saskatchewan when I was pastoring there as a young associate pastor. He was a really proper Englishman. He even gardened in his tie. And I remember walking into the room just as he woke up and he went, crikey. And I said, what, Basil? He said, I thought I'd died and I'd gone to heaven and that picture, he was looking at the picture in the hospital room, that picture that I hate was still here. <laughs> but I remember him saying this. He said, the wonderful thing about dying is that you begin to realize what really matters. You have perspective. G.K. Chesterton said, despair in the deserts of our soul can be a positive challenge if rightly understood. Problems cease to be overwhelming when they're approached as ways in which clarity can be found. The psalmist wants to see light in the circumstances. Not an answer, but perspective. Not a solution, but an understanding. It is here where the maturity of faith begins. Because it's here where God is allowed to be God. Let's take a moment to join together in prayer. Lord, like the psalmist, we seek you. We seek your guidance. In this moment of silence, we think about the things in our own lives which just don't make sense, which we don't understand, and which our only response is one of lament. Lord, in this moment, hear our prayers. Father, we know that you hear us. We know that you answer us. We know that you are with us, even when our enemies seem to be winning. However, we confess that we often forget and need to be reminded of your presence. We are assured in your reminder to us, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Even though there are times in our lives which all we can do is lift up our cries of lament, we still trust in your unfailing love. How can we feel like doing anything but rejoicing in this? We thank you and praise you for your goodness, for your faithfulness to us, your questioning people. Amen. The last section is the consistent piece in all of the Lament Psalms. It's important that by being whole from the brokenness of despair, that will not be a matter of knowing the answers. It won't be a matter of finding resolve. It won't even be a matter of making better choices. Rather, it will be trusting in the fact that God is God. And that God is the God of the questions, not just the answers. I've said this before in chapel, that the true maturity of faith begins when we invite God to be the God of our questions as much as we invite him to be the God of our answers. 
The psalmist understood that. And that's why when he concludes his lament cry, he reflects on God's character, both what he believes about God and how he has experienced God in, in the past. I know you're with me. I know your steadfast love. It's his experience of God being good to him in the past. Literally his experience, he is remembering. Salvation, I know you are the answer, not to the resolve of my despair, but to my life. Notice that the despair is not taken away. Neither does he place his trust in God answering his questions. He just trusts in God. Let me make a couple of quick observations that I think leap out of this psalm. It's here where real conversion, I think, takes place. It's not until we tire of the things that we can do for ourselves in the Christian faith that we really open ourselves up to real conversion. We will not open ourselves up to the sacred activity of God until we give up trying to control God through all of the information we have learned about God. But once all that breaks down and we discover that God is mystery and we become open to the mystery of God in our own lives as well, it's there where conversion takes place because it's there where God can work. C.S. Lewis said that there was never a time when we ask a question more wrong than when we ask ourselves if we have faith in God. He said that's when he asked himself, that he said that when he asked himself that, when he had, that if he had faith, he, it was then that he began to lose it, for then he looked at his faith and not God. Being too focused on faith is like trying to improve your vision by taking off your glasses and looking at them. The point is to look through your glasses, not at them. When we look through the spectacles of faith, we discover the awe-inspiring, uncontrollable, maybe even frightening activity of God. And we realize it was never our faith that saved us, that changed us, but it was the God that we do not understand. God is often silent. I understand that. We prefer that he speak. We prefer that he interrupts us when we prefer that he stay silent. To live with the mystery of the sacred God means that we conduct our lives with a God who does not explain himself to us. It means that we worship a God who is often way more mysterious than we understood. It means that God is not just your best friend, your secret lover, as some of our songs sometimes make him, or even a good luck charm. He's God. It's one of the problems we have with some of the songs that we sing in worship. Make me feel good, make me feel loved, you know, have your way with me, whatever. I mean, those kinds of songs don't always lay us at the foot of a God who is bigger than those things. God will not be leashed. He will not speak on our command. He will not fit into our simple theological boxes. The essential problem with the Pharisees and us is found in the understanding of the difference about knowing God and knowing about God. 
Remember, the, the Pharisees were deeply spiritual and committed to doing the things of God. Don't misunderstand that. They were good people. But remember that there's a deep difference in knowing about God and knowing and experiencing who God is. And we easily confuse the two. I didn't know Carla was going to be here, but I'm going to do this anyway. I can give you a biography of Carla, my wife. I could give you all the list of her five degrees, uh, way more than me. This person that I love deeply, but oh, you don't know because you only know her biography. You do not know her breath, the patterns of her breath, her laugh. You don't know the way she stares at me that makes me feel I'm in trouble. <laughs> you see, I know her. You only know about her. That's what the lament psalm comes to whenever it comes to the end. It comes to this point of just saying, you are God. And that is what I'll rest in. Many years ago when I was pastoring, uh, one of, and I may have even told this story once, there was this wonderfully stylish woman uh, in our church. She was the wife of the Germanics professor at the University of Alberta. She was bright and alive, but over the years, through a series of mishaps in terms of drugs that had been prescribed to her, uh, she went into a, a tailspin uh, that created constant, constant depression. And then deep, 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 dark times in her life where she would end up in the psychiatric ward, uh, oftentimes two or three times a year. We used to hate that at the church because she was also an evangelist. And so we kind of laughed because we knew when she went into the psychiatric ward, she'd be telling everybody to come to First Baptist Church and they'd all show up <laughs> when they got out. Um, she was an amazing woman. And many times she cried these lament psalms in her life. And there were days in the darkness of that that I would go in to visit her and I'd ask her, why, why do you hang in to this? Why do you even hold on to faith? And this is what she said to me out of her lament. I decided that if this was going to be my experience, if this is what my life would be like, that I would trust in a God that I have known even though I don't experience him in that moment. And she said, and I decided that then, because of that God, I would learn to suffer well. I've never forgotten that. I probably never will. 
And every time that I find myself in a piddly little despairing problem, I think of her and I say, where are you, God, in the midst of this? How long? But you're God. And in that I will rest. Amen.